our most important and central cultural value called Inafamalik. teaches us that all things are interconnected and interrelated and thus should be treated with respect, care, and love. As kaitiaki or as caretakers of the environment, we must provide benefits to the environment, we must maintain a balance in the environment, and one means of doing that is to place a rahui, a temporary restriction on an area over a resource. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. We'll start, I want to, for the first words of uh, coming together tonight, to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging, to thank them for their care of all of the relations that make life possible. The University of Sydney as a place of learning is built on top of tens of thousands of years of learning, learning since time in memoriam and learning from which we have much to learn. And in the spirit of the conversations that we've been having as part of the Beyond Bios, um, Bios Symposium the last couple of days, I also want to acknowledge everyone else who is here with us, the plants outside, the sand that made the sandstone of this building, the rocks, all of the animals who are outside, that we are not here alone, that we're, in here, we're here in much company. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this evening's conversation on otherwise, with all of the plays of meaning, otherwise, Indigenous philosophies and practices of multi-species justice. Uh, as I mentioned, this is an event which is adjacent to the Beyond Bios Symposium. And in that context, I also want to, a very different level of acknowledgement, acknowledge the Australian Research Council uh, for making it possible for these speakers to join us from far afield tonight and going up a level of acknowledgement again to acknowledge Sophie Chow in particular, uh, also Christine Winter and David Schlossberg, the organisers, but especially Sophie, who's imagination really made all of this possible, um, and the Sydney Environment Institute. So in this room, actually, in 2018, before the world uh, changed in such radical ways for people who live in this part of the world, uh, a number of us gathered for our first multi-species justice symposium when we started to try and think together what would it mean to take seriously that justice applied to all earth beings, not only some human beings? And one of the great gifts of that symposium was that Christine and Marguerite were both there. And apart from their brilliant wisdom and friendship and uh, intellectual contributions, that meant fr that from the beginning, of us thinking about multi-species justice, we had this base note of reminder that we weren't doing something new. That uh, 
academics like me love to think that we're coming up with new ideas, you know, the, the turn, the this turn and the that turn, the material turn, the linguistic turn, the multi-species turn, but that actually if we were going to turn anywhere, we should also be turning back and turning to look at what was continuous but what had been erased from dominant knowledge systems. And so I'm very grateful, and Christine, who worked at the Sydney Environment Institute and then left us all, um, but was so central to the, the way in which we started thinking about and articulating multi-species justice, never stopped reminding us that these are ideas that not only have other peoples been thinking about and practising since time immemorial, but are still thinking about and practising and that these are living ways of being. And that if we were going to be developing these conceptions and reinstitutionalizations around multi-species justice, there needed to be three principles that underlied that. First, that we acknowledged and paid due respect to the knowledges, to the wisdoms that were already present and that we didn't make claims that erased those knowledges and thereby committed an injustice. And uh, actually two, not three, two really big claims. And second, that we needed to be we, this broad we, and I include not just human beings in that we of making multi-species justice, that it needed to be sufficiently capacious that a range of worlds or understandings of worlds could not only be included from the beginning, but that there was a dynamic of conceptualization and institutionalization. Because you never know who you're leaving out, right? We always have a back, we always miss something. And the we who is in the room always ex excludes someone, whether that's an animal or a plant or fungi or sand. And so I'm very grateful that, that we're coming back tonight to have a conversation five years later where we can return to those seeds of acknowledgement of what justice required, what multi-species justice required, and have this conversation about how, how are other First Nations, how are First Nations, a range of First Nations people, what has multi-species justice meant in terms of practice? What does it mean? What does it mean in terms of resistance? What does it mean in terms of creativity? And that's the conversation that we're going to have tonight. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly introduce each of the speakers. The longer bios are available on the invitation um, and on the Beyond Bios website. And then I'm just going to start a conversation and I'm sure they're going to take it from there. Um, so, Craig um, Santos-Perez, uh, the, the person waving, <laughs> um, is a creative writing scholar from the Chamorro people of Guam, um, also a professor in the English department and affiliate faculty with the Centre for Pacific Island Studies and the Indigenous Politics Program at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, Christine Winter, immediately to my right, is an environmental justice scholar at the University of Otago, research affiliate at the Sydney Environment Institute. She researches the ways justice theory perpetuates or perhaps doesn't perpetuate colonial practices of domination, oppression and violence. 
Marco Stewart Harawera. Did I pronounce that correctly? Um, no? Yes. It <laughs> seems yes. like, no, you near, didn't. Near enough. Near um, enough. Um, it's a professor in Indigenous Environmental and Global Studies at the University of Alberta, Canada. An Indigenous Maori scholar from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Makare um, is a member of the... Now, I am going to get this completely wrong. You can tell us the name of your iwi. Oh. Pronounced uh, properly. Waitaha Kitu Waiponamu. Right, thank you. Um, that's called sharing knowledge and, and has been living and working on Treaty 6 lands in Alberta, Canada since 2004. Um, and at the end, Judith Nangala Crispin is a visual artist and poet with a background in music and many other things as I have learnt over the last couple of days. She trans, uh, traces her ancestry to the Bangarang. 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 I got that wrong. <laughs> um, despite having been coached um, of northeastern Victoria and the New South Wales Riverina, also to Ghana, Senegal, France, Ireland and Scotland. Judith's work includes themes of displacement and identity loss, but it is primarily centred on the concept of connection with country and with dingoes. <laughs> so, um, Craig, I'm going to start with you. And I wanted to start with you because I wanted to start at the beginning mm. um, with creation stories. Mm. And, and in a way, I'm actually asking you to take us through a bit of a life cycle. So to tell us a little bit about Chamorro creation and how it embodies multi-species and environmental ethics, but then also to speak about how people in Guam have resisted the devastation of those worlds which are formed from those creation mm. understandings? Well, half a day. In eight minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> half a day. Hello, everyone. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, and of course, I want to also acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people. Uh, it's great to be back here in Sydney. Um, there are many versions of the Chamorro creation story. As it has been told to me, there mm. was a brother named Punten and his sister Fuuna, who were uh, lost at sea in their outrigger canoe in the northwestern Pacific, uh, where I'm from. And as is common in that area of the Pacific, there were many storms, and uh, a storm kind of rocked their canoe and split the outrigger, and they were uh, clinging to, to their lives. And uh, soon a school of fish came and carried their bodies uh, to a submerged mountain, which just the little top was appearing uh, from the ocean surface. And so unfortunately, even though uh, the fish was able to carry them to safety, uh, Punten, the brother, had uh, drowned on that journey. And so Fauna uh, buried his body in the land and then she, kind of using uh, her tears, uh, trees began to sprout from his body. And she then took uh, his eyes and planted one in the sky for the sun and the other uh, to create the moon. Uh, then birds came and started uh, taking some of the seeds and digesting them into their bodies and spreading them throughout the island. So kind of the the jungle or the rainforest began to, to spread. Uh, as Fauna reached the end of her life, she uh, dived into the water 
and her body calcified and became the stone, uh, the stone formation that we call Lasofu'a, or creation rock. Um, from this rock, uh, mixed with the sand and the tides as they were going back and forth, uh, then my people were born. And uh, as generations pass, uh, my ancestors would uh, annually pilgrimage during the new year uh, to Lasofu'a, this rock, and they brought offerings to uh, Puntan and Fauna. They also brought their uh, fish hooks and fishing nets to be blessed for a bountiful harvest. And then they also uh, brought uh, medicinal plants so that those can be blessed as well and given out to, to the sick in the villages. This was practiced for many generations until, uh, until the 16th century, 1521, uh, Magellan and his galleon of ships arrived to Guam and actually to that same bay where Lasofu'a, this rock, uh, was. And uh, 1521, of course, was just 30 years after Columbus arrived to the so-called Americas. Um, and unfortunately, as Magellan arrived to Guam, it inaugurated uh, kind of an era of uh, imperial expansion in the Pacific. And so Guam became part of uh, the galleon trade route between the Americas. Uh, the equatorial currents would take them to Guam and then they would go to the Philippines uh, to trade with Chinese merchants. And uh, that, of course, formed the wealth of the Spanish empire for, for about three centuries. Uh, in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, that was when Guam then became a U.S. territory. And, it, and over time, uh, the U.S. government would expropriate the land and uh, put military bases, and it became, and is now, continues to be, uh, one of the most important uh, or strategic bases within the U.S. empire in the Asia-Pacific region. And so today, about 30% of our landmass uh, is occupied by different military bases. Now the story of Puntan and Fauna, they say, uh, started to hide in, in people's bodies because when the Spanish arrived, they also, also missionized our islands and uh, forced uh, my people to convert to Catholicism. And a new creation story took root, of course, the Christian creation story. And so the, the story of Puntan and Fauna, as I said, was hiding uh, most people forgot about it or were forced to forget about it, um, but it did survive in, in small enclaves. Uh, I was born in 1980, and I was raised Catholic. Never heard of our own people's creation story throughout my childhood. It was not till uh, 15 years ago when I actually first heard this story as it was uh, revitalized by many cultural activists on Guam. Now, part of what spurred this revitalization of our creation story uh, was the announcement of a new U.S. Uh, military buildup on our island in 2006, where they had planned to take more land, thousands of acres of jungle, um, and to create a new uh, marine base in response to growing geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. And part of their plan was to uh, transform a very sacred part of our island named Pogget into a live firing range for, for train, weapons training and testing. Um, what spurred my people to actually uh, protest this is partly this creation story. It began to circulate throughout our island once again, even though it had been lost or 
hiding for centuries. And uh, as our elders were teaching us this story, embedded within the story were these environmental lessons that uh, the lands, the water, the birds and the fish were our kinship, were our ancestors and were our relatives. And uh, from that idea be, uh, emerged our most important and central cultural value called Inafamalik. And this value teaches us that all things are interconnected and interrelated and thus uh, should be treated with respect, care, and love. And so as the story was circulating in 2006, it really uh, inspired my people to stand up against militarism, uh, not only because it was you know, polluting our environment and, and taking more land, but also uh, because we wanted to protect uh, our relatives. And so this kind of culturally grounded uh, resistance uh, really inspired me personally to become part of this movement and uh, to kind of realize that you know, our stories are vessels or, or canoes for uh, not only traditional environmental knowledge, but as well as customs and practices, and also uh, inspiration for us to continue to protect our lands and waters for these reasons. And so I think it allowed my community to uh, imagine otherwise and to, to really uh, feel a sense of urgency to protect what, what we had left. Now, during this time as well, there are several activists who revitalized the pilgrimage to uh, the sacred rock as well. And so it was really inspirational for us to uh, see this pilgrimage, which hadn't been practiced on our island for centuries, to become revitalized in response to this further militarization. And now it's been going on annually for a couple years now, and it continues to inspire our people. And so, you know, with that, I just wanted to share that, that brief story and how it has not only taught us about uh, multi-species justice, about environmental uh, knowledge, but also how it becomes uh, kind of a foundation of our, of our activism today. Oh, thank you. Um, and so, Marco, I'm going to turn to you and, and really ask both of you, but, but for you to speak first, about this, this interplay between ancient practices and protocols that have been passed down of understandings of what we're calling multi-species justice or justice beyond the human and the relationality that, that underpins that, but also the way in which that interfaces with resistance to colonial violence. So if both of you could speak to that, that would be wonderful. Kia ora, Christine <laughs> um, and um, Danny and Craig and Judith. Um, <clears throat> so as I was listening uh, to Craig and I was thinking about our own creation stories in which um, <clears throat> human beings again were the last to be made and so what that means then of course is that we are the youngest and we have a um, responsibility to all of those beings, all of those flora and fauna, all the species that were made, as the youngest, we have a responsibility to care for and protect all of those beings. So in a very real sense then, that idea of um, 
being the youngest, being, being part of this enormously uh, interwoven, interconnected web that, again, you know, begins with the primal parents and expands across the cosmos and also brings into creation all the other things, means for us as Māori that, that we have two kind of key principles that I, I guess what I would mention in relation to this. And the first is this, is this ethic or principle of kaitiakitanga, the responsibility to care for, to nurture, and protect all other species because they are our relations. And not only are they our relations, they are our older relations. So, um, you know, as I think about that, and the other part of that too is that what goes with that is the idea of reciprocity, of always, um, reciprocity is about maintaining balance, but reciprocity is always too about exchange. How do we enact the principle of reciprocity and exchange in maintaining balance? Um, I, I just kind of want to digress a little minute because it's on my mind very much. But so over the last couple of days, I've heard some people talking about stones. And, um, you know, we generally don't think about stones or people out there don't often think about stones as having real life and living things. But for, for us, they are. All inanimate things have their own life force. They all um, are all species with their own life, with their own beingness, if you like. And I was very interested to hear people talking about stones because when I was um, younger than I am, <laughs> um, quite a lot younger than I am, and I would talk to my cousins and I would want to ask them things um, because I was still learning so much and I still am. So I'm, you know, actually, I'm certainly not what Danny said. But so the real issue is they would say to me, Sissy, go and talk to the stones. Well, you know, I was an academic by then. And so I would say, look, why don't you just tell me? You know, could you just tell me? Sissy, go and talk to the stones. So eventually I would go and talk to the stones. And it's a, <laughs> and, and it's a real thing. Uh, I learned to listen to the stones. And the stones talk. And my kids know that without me even telling them, which I also find really interesting, um, because that is what they've done since the day they were born, all six of them. But, um, and so what does that mean? It means that there is an ethic of how to be in the world. It means that whenever, um, all right, whenever actions that are involving sand, that are involving changing things, that are involving development, that are involving um, building on reclaimed land, that are involving diverting the waters, um, Etc. Etc. Um, there is an interference that is going on with living things, and so how do we respond to those? And we do, or at least certainly we have in place protocols that um, that endeavour to uh, 
intervene in ways that if we can't prevent this from taking place, if it's this particular kind of action, then certainly will redress some of the balance. But I'm thinking at the moment about the earthquakes in Christchurch. So I'm from Aotearoa, I'm from New Zealand, I live in Canada. Um, my hometown is Christchurch and 2011 there was this massive earthquake and there was uh, all of that um, grey clay stuff, I forget the term for it, but it all came up from everywhere and covered everything. And that is a city that has been built on multiple um, rivers, river systems and is an example of the ways in which the things that we do when we don't think about um, the right of the river to be there, the right of those swamps, that's a, that's a whole ecosystem. It was a place where Māori gathered food. Um, so it's a city that is literally built on a wetland because we were so smart we thought we could drain it. When those things are going to happen today, generally Māori now get to have some input into some of those things. But then, of course, when that city was built, we didn't. And so, so what does that mean? Um, today, one of the things that we do generally is when people are going to do developments like that, we have the opportunity to have input into that. Um, today, and it's very interesting what's happening at home around water, um, Today there is an endeavour to bring Māori, it's more than an endeavour, it is an actuality, to bring Māori into um, new frameworks around how we treat water and how we manage water in Aotearoa in New Zealand. As I think about that, Danny, and I was thinking about your question, um, how do we actually enact that? So if I go back to, I want to go back to how we enact this on the marae, which I think is the place where our culture is most visible. And the marae being the meeting house and the piece of the part of the land that we gather on, right? And so the first thing that happens when we gather together on the marae is we call in the ancestors. That is done by the women, all right. And we call, and somebody earlier was talking about voice and sound. And you reminded me, as I listened to you across the table there, about the way in which sound is evoked in that calling. So the karanga, performed by women, um, uses particular tones. I remember when I was taught um, to Karanga a long time ago. There were ways in which I was taught to feel that vibration, how that vibration um, resonated within my body because then that would be the right resonance that would bring in the ancestors. And so for me, when I think about that, and I feel quite emotional just at the moment as I'm thinking about that. Um, there is such an acknowledgement there that everything we do 
involves the ancestors. And everything that we do involves all the species that we are engaged in in our life because they all become part of that process of that karanga. And whatever happens after that, the fact that those ancestors have been brought in and all of those beings have been brought in means that that entire meeting is, is conducted in a certain way. It also means that um, we have particular kind of protocols for how we treat species, how we go into the forest, and how we um, talk to, of course, talk to the, the species that are there, but also how we pick things, how we gather things for medicine, how we plant, the ways in which we plant, the times that we plant, the, 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 the circumstances within which we do things. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting today is that, the, certainly at home and, and increasingly in Canada where I live, um, we see Māori knowledge or indigenous knowledge and indigenous ways of doing things being recognised much more than they used to be. And that's a good thing, although at the same time it's always something of a struggle. There's a difference between giving uh, lip, lip service to, uh, to policy and practice and actually enacting it at times. But I take, um, I take myself uh, a lot of um, encouragement from the fact that there is this endeavour across, even internationally and across different, certainly at home in, in Canada, to allow those understandings of how we treat species to become part and parcel of practice. At the same time, it's still a struggle um, because it often, it's often inconvenient when you know when you want to um, when you know that that what you're going to do is going to have an effect on a particular species that you owe protection to, then you have to find a way to not do that, and certainly that's that's a challenge. It's actually a perfect yeah. segue to yeah. Christine speaking about a specific yeah. practice of rahui. As a, as a particular exemplification of, of what you've been speaking about. So, please. Ko whakapunaki toko maunga, ko wairo toko awa, ko nati kahanunu ki wairo toko iwi, ki Christine Winter toko ingoa, ko taku mihi tenai ki Koto na tangata o gadigal o te iwi i ora na kai pupuri matauronga koto na kaitiaki uh, o tenai fenoa mai i a ata hapara tuatahi tenakoto tenakoto katoa. So greetings, everyone. Um, I've just introduced you myself, uh, and I've told you of my ancestry. So you can know me and you can know my relationships to place, to the mountain, Whakapunaki, and the river Wairoa. The, I, um, I missed out a whole bunch of other things that I could have told you about for, for brevity, really. 
And then I also um, thanked the Gadigal, the knowledge holders of this place, and the kaitiaki. And you'll, you'll recognise that word from uh, uh, Makri just talking about kaitiakitanga. So the, the, the person who protects the land is the kaitiaki. So I, I thanked um, the Gadigal for their work as kaitiaki of this land. So with a pepeha, which is what I've just told you, a pepeha helps you to understand something of Māori ontology, our sense of who we are in the world and to whom we are related and to whom we bear responsibilities of reciprocity. We understand, as Makari has said, that we are the youngest of the creations. And so for Māori, all benefits are reciprocal and it's not a one-way process. And so it's an important part, just to reiterate, of kaitia kitanga is reciprocity. So my contribution to tonight's conversation is about a specific tool that we use as kaitiaka, as, as caretakers of the natural realm. So one of, you know, well, I'm just coming back to it because it's so important. One of the really important um, uh, uh, elements of kaitiaki is utu or reciprocity. So it's important to keep everything in balance, whether that's in human affairs or within the environment. When things are out of balance, action must be taken to care for a resource or a natural area, for instance. So we'll be talking about multi species justice. We're talking about you know, a resource or an area. So in the Māori worldview, and according to customs and protocols and laws that regulate behaviour related to the natural realm or the physical environment, there are a system of rules. And that there, there, are, there are three primary systems. One is tapu, the other is rahui, and third is noa. So the practical room, rules to maintain harmony and sustainability for the environment and for human flourishing. So under these protocols, everything sits somewhere along a spectrum, from the profane to the sacred, all right? from the everyday to the sacred, if you like. And in the matter of the environment, that means that resources, areas, regions are given one of those three categories. They are tapu, they might have a rahui over them, or they might be noa. An area that is tapu, and you probably recognise that word because English has taken it and turned it into tabu. So something is tabu, that the source of that word is tapu. All right. So an area that is tapu is completely off limits. It's so sacred that it cannot be used. For example, on the top of my ancestral mountain, Whakapunaki, there is a little lake. And this lake is connected to our origin story where the god Moe fished up the North Island out of the sea. And the little lake on the top of my <coughs> ancestral mountain is understood to be where the hook caught the fish. And that, that Maui then pulled up and that is now the North Island. So that lake is incredibly sacred. And so it is tapu, so you can't swim in it, you can't enter it, you can't take water from it. Right? So it is protected. At the other extreme, most of the natural world is noa. In other words, it is without restriction. Now, in the middle, 
It's the middle category that I'll talk about now, rahui. So rahui means a prohibition or to, or to prohibit. It means banned or out of bounds, forbidden or under sanctuary or reserved or preserved. So in the context of kaitia kitanga, it means that there is a prohibition on the use of one or more resources in an area. A restriction is placed on an area or a space or an activity. So for instance, when a resource is threatened or there's been an untimely death, say in a sea, in the sea or in the river, and this is the way it is practiced now, a temporary restriction, and the length of that restriction varies, a temporary restriction is placed on the area. So in the old days, a rahui could be placed on an area where people had drowned, and that may, that may stay in place for centuries, out of respect for those who drowned. These days, it will be for 10 days, a week, a shorter period, okay? Um, but the idea is to re-establish a balance, to bring the natural realm back into balance. So mainly these days, rahui is used when there has been an untimely death in waters. We can't place rahui over land anymore because the land is owned by other people. Most of the land is owned by other people, so that's not possible. But in Aotearoa, the waters are common property, so we can place rahui over waters. Let me turn to the conservation focus. So again, I'll just reiterate this. For Māori, all benefits are reciprocal, and it's not one way. There is this important principle of reciprocity. And so that means that we as humans must exercise our power in a manner that is beneficial to the resource or the resources under our care. And if it becomes apparent that, say, a shellfish uh, is being too heavily harvested or that a particular plant, uh, food plant is being overused, a rahui will be placed on the area to allow the replenishment of that food or that plant or that area. It's a temporary ban, a, ban, a ban on gathering from the area that allows the balance to be re-established and for the, for the environment to flourish again. However, a rahui has no substance in law. There is a push to start giving it teeth again. It had incredible teeth in the old days. People would never break a rahui for... Um, for fear of, uh, of death, right? It's, it's a sacred act performed by the tohanga, performed by the knowledge holder, the priest, perhaps, is the equivalent. These days, non-Māori will break a rahui. Māori are calling for rahui to have the same power as, um, you know, the Ministry of, of, I don't even know what they're called, the Ministry of, of Natural Resources, let's say, for the lack of another word, um, who can place bans on, you know, they can create a, a, um, a, a, an area where you can't take resources um, and they can monitor that and people can be fined for going in there. So Māori are calling for the same power behind Rahui, but at this point that doesn't exist. I'll stop there. So in conclusion, as kaitiaki or as caretakers of the environment, 
we must provide benefits to the environment, we must maintain a balance in the environment, and one means of doing that is to place a rahui, a temporary restriction on an area or over a resource to allow balance to be maintained and to assist that resource or that area to flourish. It's an ancient practice that it was, it was implemented on land, waters and seas, but today it's mainly used for waters and seas because the land is owned by the title holders and the Crown, not by Māori as kaitiaki. So uh, an example of that, and I know you were talking about um, Koda the, before, yeah, yeah. Um, and another example is there was a spill in the harbour along mm. the coast, mm. and this is some years ago now, <laughs> and the, um, so the Department for Conservation, DOC, I think it's changed, but anyway, that's what it was, DOC um, put a ban on um, fishing within a certain range because of the oil that was going to contaminate these particular shellfish. And the local com Māori community said, actually you need a much wider ban because that oil affects these other particular, and it was a very uh, other particular shellfish. So they were asking for a very much wider ban. And, and you know, fish and game and all of those recreational fishes, fisher organisations were very opposed to that mm. because, and they hold a lot of sway, right? And so, uh, so Doc was not at all inclined to do this. Māori insisted, finally Doc went and tested those shellfish and found that, yes, actually, the local Māori community, surprise, surprise, did actually know what they were talking about. And so that a much bigger and much longer ban was, was put on there. So, so, you know, those things do happen for sure. Um, and, uh, but again, um, other, other interests often have uh, rather much more say than we do. But, but um, when it comes to multi-species justice and how we um, enact those things, um, I think that, that you know, that, that uh, example of Rahui is a really important piece of how we do that, for sure. Mm. Thank you so much. So one of the developments that's, the very exciting developments that's happening in multi-species justice now is that if you take seriously that the land or other earth beings are subjects of justice, that means that they get to have a say. It's not just, you know, a condescending, you know, humans deciding what's going to be allowed or not going to be allowed within a set of existing interests. And I really love the way when I, when I wrote to Judith and I was, you know, what do you want to talk about? When you described Kurawari, you didn't say learning to listen to country, you said allowing country to speak. This difference, actually, and this is something that drives me insane when I talk about other earth beings having a say and people go, well, how will you possibly know? Well, they're actually talking all the time and particularly lately screaming pretty loudly and pretty obviously. So that's what I was hoping you might speak about, allowing country to speak. Yeah, there came a point in my life where I realised I had been lied to, just as all of you have been lied to. There are so many authorities that we have, white authorities in um, universities and churches, and what they will say to you 
is the trees don't talk to you. The stars are not intelligent. Stones are indifferent to you. Death is an ending with no magic behind it. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. These things are lies. They're lies because the people speaking them don't know if that is the case. And given that they don't know that that is the case, there's a 50-50 chance either way. And yet, they are invested in you believing one way. And the answer to why they're doing that is because your fear, your grief, your isolation from the world is profitable to them. It allows them to act as they like. It removes the defenders from country. But when I realised the extent to which I had been lied to my entire life, I began to ask myself if I could carve out of my brain everything an authority had placed there about how I should see the country, how would I see the country? And I didn't know the answer. At the time I started asking myself these questions, I was being grown up by the Walpuri in community in the desert. I'm not Walpuri, but I'm going to speak to you about a Walpuri idea, and I'm speaking to you about this idea with the permission of Walpuri people. And this is a word, a Walpuri word, kurawari. And kurawari has many meanings. It can mean the law, which we can think of as L-A-W or L-O-R-E. Um, but fundamentally what it means is the pattern. It's the pattern. If you were to put a bowl of water into the room and you were to play a drum, you would see vibrations on the top of the water, sympathetic vibrations. Things move across different surfaces through different kinds of existence and these patterns recur. Um, the same kind of, of wave moving across grasslands in the desert will create this impression of waves, the same as you'll see on water. Um, and these things happen to us. As I am speaking, I am creating sound waves. Those sound waves are moving through your blood at the moment. Your blood is altered by my speaking. And, and country, when country speaks, country creates patterns that move across it. The dunes move at night in the desert and they erase the tracks of everybody who's walked there. And when you wake up, the desert looks different. Country speaks all the time. And... We have to find a way to interact with that. You know, and when, when the old ladies were telling me about Kurawari, a part of me was feeling quite despairing. Um, it's another theory. I mean, I know so many theories. I spent so long reading philosophy, reading religion, I could tell you beautiful theories. None of them make the slightest difference. None of them make the world a better place. None of them make me a better person. None of them will persuade a CEO to change anything. So I wanted to know, what can I do? How can I find Kurawari in me? And it became this driving question that made me quit my job and put everything that I had into trying to do this, trying to do this. So my first, first thought was, well, if country speaks, what possibility is there of a shared language? You know, the Walpuri always say, speak to country and country will speak back. OK, but if I go out to country and I say, oh, hi, country, I'm Judith Nangala, really nice to meet you. How do I, how does country hear me? How do I hear country? So I, I began to try to look for a shared, a shared language, a shared language. I walked out into country to see what it would give me. And what it gave me 
because of the situation that we live in here, is a whole bunch of cadavers. It gave me dead snakes, dead kangaroos, it gave me dead plants, it gave me these things. And I thought, okay, well, this is a challenge. I'm being given this small creature here. Uh, we have a lot of uh, wombats that are killed on the roads and we always check the pouches for little ones and this was a little stillborn wombat. What can I do? How can I honour this life? How can I respond to this life in a way where it doesn't necessarily matter if country hears what I'm saying, but how can I continue what country is saying? How can I be um, a loudspeaker for the things that country is trying to say, regardless of my opinion on those things? Because my opinion doesn't matter on those things. If, if I am to know anything true, and it's not just going to be a projection of what I want from the country, but if I'm to know anything true, I have to run with what's given to me. So. Um, I decided what I would do, because my background is in photography, I would take these pieces of light-sensitive paper and I would put that little cadaver on that light-sensitive paper and I would allow the light to interact. You can see up the top here. That's what that little creature looks like. It was an eight-month exposure. So I put him on a piece of uh, light-sensitive paper and you have this combination here. It's an old-school thing we call lumen printing or sun printing. And it's the result of a cadaver, which we, is a resist because it blocks the light, the sunlight, and then the emulsion. And the emulsion is essentially silver halide crystals suspended in a gel. Some of you here are old enough to have been in a dark room, so it's essentially light-sensitive paper. This is the first one I ever did. I went out, literally, almost out of my mind, you know, talking to country like a mad person saying, hello, I'm, I'm Nungala, I'm passing through, I'm not going to hurt you, please, I'm trying to work out if there's a shared language, if there's any truth, any truth, or if everything is just the psychosis of the human mind projected outward. And a country gave me a dead tiger snake, or brown snake, I think this little one was. And so if you go down this a little bit more, you can see this is what this looks like without anything else. It's only, only the sun and the resist and none of my own intervention. As things went on, I realised that I could participate in this. It could become a conversation. I could allow country's pattern to come through and then I could add mine because I'm not separate from country. I, I am not this, this hovering intelligence over country and then I can impose everything on it. But the things that come through me when I'm engaged with country are also part of country. They're also part of country speaking. So I began to set things up. This is a, a technique called cliché vert. Um, the French call it that. And it's basically just putting a whole bunch of things on a sheet of glass and then you put the light sensitive paper underneath and then the light imprints all the way around it. And so it, it's a way that you, can, that you can keep these shapes from country, things that country gave me on that land, but I can participate as well. It's not just a straight imprint. And you can see this little thing here. I even put a landscape, a, a, a horizon in. I did that with Vegemite because it was in my car. That didn't come from country. The rest of the things came from country. And then I began to think about, well, what more is there? I, I, I'm picking up these big building blocks of things like dead wallabies or leaves and sticks and resins. But there's more. There's more. There's the way that, that um, things propagate. There's this beautiful, beautiful word, I think, in Walpuri, um, warna yara. It's usually translated as the rainbow snake, and we have a lot of legends about that that you're all familiar with. 
But that word itself, warna, means snake. Yara, the undulating movement of things that move as a snake's, snake moves, that vital force, that voice of country when the wind comes up, when things begin to sound in the trees, the songs of birds, this place that called the syrinx in a bird, which is the place of their voice, but it's also the place of their breathing. So sometimes they breathe out song and sometimes they breathe out breath. These are all vibrations. So I started to experiment with electricity. Um, so running currents through these household chemicals or um, uh, acids, these kinds of things to create these shapes, which I could then press onto the page and then use along with the other animals or the plants or these parts of country that came along. And then I became a even more carried away and started working on more complex arrangements. So this is a com combination of all of these different things together. Um, I set up Clichever with echidna spines held in Vegemite and then sand to create stars. And then I put the birds of that place and the lizards of that place that I found that had died on our roads. Um, and I placed them in that landscape. And you'll see that there, there are these lines. I have added these lines, and they're in almost all my works, because one of the things that, I, that um, the Wapri ladies were telling me was that we're connected to land. We're connected by these invisible electric wires. They call them spider strings that connect us, connect us to our country. And so here is this attempt to sort of take these fallen creatures and then to, to only take materials that are from their country, the country that they passed away on, and then enter into this dialogue with, with country about what that might look like. Anyway, there were problems. Wedgetail eagles kept nicking my birds. Um, that happened a lot. I, I ended up running across a paddock trying to get back a joey that a wedgetail eagle had taken. So I started building these structures um, as places where, where I could make those works and then the wedgetail eagles wouldn't take them and it wouldn't rain on them too much and I could do longer exposures and bigger exposures of these, these things. And, and often they would take 30 to 50 hours to make these prints. And in that time, because you know, once you've gone this far, right, there's no going back. Right? You've, you've crossed the reasonable threshold and you need to then just commit to that. So I, I began to write these epitaphs, these poetic epitaphs for these animals to try to, 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 try to find a way to, to, to really genuinely mourn them to try to find a way to, to uh, allow country to say something important. And I think what country was trying to say is the life, the life of an ant, the life of a stone, the life of a fish is worth every bit as much as the life of any world leader. And until we really understand that and we really recognise that and we feel that in our bones when we pass an owl on the side of the highway, when that devastates us as though it was a child, until we reach that point, we will always be psychopaths. We'll always be human-centric, we'll be violent, we'll be trapped in this destructive spiral that we've, that we've been caught up in, you know. And, you know, the thing is that country is speaking all the time, all the time. Um, I, I had this terrible motorcycle crash, you know, a, a year or so ago, and um, all, I had concussion, I didn't know who anyone was, and all my friends came to bring casseroles and to say, you know, they hoped I was okay, and I had no idea who any of them were. 
So I had no idea how I was going to thank them. So just in my own home, without even going outside, every time someone came, I took a little dead mosquito or a spider or a you know, grasshopper and I put it in a jar. And then when I began to start remembering people, I arranged these as a cliché vert, and then I dedicated that to all of the people, real people plus insect people and country people and the spirits of the land that had supported me through, through that. Um, just trying to allow that, that gratitude to be the way that I was speaking back, speaking back to country. And this is the, the most recent. You can see that the practice has evolved over time. And um, I found that a, a hair, I electrified the hair, and um, all of the emanations of the hair came out onto the page. I mean, the important thing to realize for these things is they're not paintings. This is what the light sees. Mm -hmm. It's not what I see. Um, honestly, it's not even my taste in art, you know. I would be Jenny Sages if I could be. But it's what the light sees, and there's something miraculous about that. All of these systems are unfolding all the time around us in country. It's this enormous act, constant act of communication, but we're close to it. You know, and until we can see that we're always close to that offer of communication, until we can stand out of the way and let that voice of country come through us, you know, then, you know, I, I, I really think we can't change very much. Mm. Country knows what we need to do to heal country, but we have to find a way to learn to listen. For me, that way is kurawari. Um, there are many cultures, I'm sure, that have a concept very similar to kurawari. That's just the word. I wish I could tell you that word in my grandfather's language, but there are about 10 words in my grandfather's language that remain, um, courtesy of successive genocidal policies in this country. But at least this one remains, kurawari, the language, the language of the country or the pattern. Do you want to just add something quickly? Oh, I was just going to add that the original kaitiaki were the birds. Yes. The, yes. Mm. I just want to repeat something that Judith said, which is may we all cross that line and commit to it. Mm. May we all cross that line and commit to it. Because country is telling us that in very, very obvious ways. And Wherever we come from, I think that we all do know that. So if you would just join me with just such gratitude because it, it, is, it is a gift. Wisdom is a gift and, and it's not nothing to share it. And I think we just feel very gifted and grateful. And, and thank you also everybody for joining us because gifts require receivers as well. So thanks. Good night.